January 6th is an important day. It's an important day for me because it's the day my mother was born. But it's also the day in which the church throughout the centuries has celebrated and given thanks for the fact that the gospel is a gospel not just for one nation, but it is a gospel for the nations. Uh, this is the day, the, the 12th day of Christmas, if you will, the 12th day, the last day of the Christmas season in which the church for centuries has been overjoyed, as were the Magi, overjoyed that the gospel is a gospel for Gentiles. A friend of mine in a missions conference once said, God loves Gentiles. He collects them, you know. And here in Matthew's gospel, this most Jewish of all the gospels, the first people to worship the king are Gentiles. That should make your hearts very, very glad. So let me have you read with me Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for um, this portion of your word, and thank you for the opportunity to think about it together this morning and as we, as we do each week, we, we recognize that we need your spirit, and so we pray for your spirit. We pray for your spirit to open our eyes and soften our hearts and make pliable our wills so that we can see and so that we can believe and so that we can go from this place to do the things that would please you and 
honor Christ who has come into the world for people like us. Lord, to give us grace to understand your word by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There is um, quite a cast of characters uh, here in this passage. Uh, you can think first of the, uh, the Magi, the Magi, these wise men they're called. They were probably um, sort of a hybrid of a number of things. They were sort of philosophers. They were sort of astrologers. They were sort of students of, of various kinds of writings. They, they were a caste, a fairly influential caste in in Persia, in Babylon, that's where they came from in all probability. Um, and I suppose in some respects they probably feel like they walked into the middle of a family feud. Uh, there are the Magi, people of influence. They probably had a fairly significant entourage with them. They had traveled a long distance, uh, you know, come on camels or something, had to have all their supplies with them, probably had servants in attendance uh, with them. They they get to Jerusalem. They, they seem to have enough influence to be able to have access to the king, to Herod. You know, you don't just walk into Jerusalem and knock on the king's door and say, hey, I got a couple of questions I'd like to ask you. You know, they, for some reason, they had access to the king. And they're the, they're the first group, the Magi and these, the, or the Magi and their, their entourage. And then the other, the other group, the other cast of characters, uh, would be, of course, Herod and all of his entourage, all of his cast of characters, his, uh, his advisors, the priests, the teachers of the law, um, his army, his soldiers who later go to Bethlehem. If you read farther in Matthew chapter 2, they execute his order by executing all the children under two years of age, clearly a person of power and influence. And then, of course, there is the baby, Jesus, and his mom and dad, touching his human nature, his mother, not his father, of course, but his parents there in the house. The text tells us that they were in the house. They're no longer in the stable. This has been some weeks, months since the nativity, since the birth of Christ, and now they're still in Bethlehem, but they're in a house someplace. And so there is Jesus, and there is Mary, and there's Joseph, and then there is maybe whoever owned the house, or maybe they rented a house. We don't know, but they would be the third group of people in this cast of characters. But there's a fourth character in this uh, drama in this narrative. Not named, but very much present. Uh, the character not named, but very much present, is the invisible but ever-present Lord God of heaven and earth. And it's really the fourth character that I want us to think about this morning the invisible character, the unseen character, but the character who is every bit as present, in fact, arguably more present, more real, the God of heaven and earth, 
the God who holds the whole of the creation in his hands, the God who holds all of these events in his hand, the eternal God. It is his hand, present there, present here, present everywhere, who orders and accomplishes all of these things for his glory, for the good of his people, according to his purposes. You know, you look at a passage like that, what you have here in Matthew chapter 2, and you think, oh, what if it had been a cloudy night and they hadn't been able to see the star? Oh, what if Herod's guys had gotten there to Bethlehem ahead of the wise men? Oh, that was close. Boy, that was lucky. Boy, that was fortunate. I don't know if you read the gospel narratives in that way, but there are a lot of close calls, if you will, in the scriptures. But viewed from the perspective of the invisible hand who orders and who guides and who directs, there are no close calls. And there's nothing to sweat Think of it in three ways. Think of it with respect to three things, if you would. Think of the invisible but mighty and wise and powerful hand of Almighty God. God has power, infinite power, in the first place to plant his kingdom. To plant his kingdom. He has power sufficient to protect and preserve his king. And he has power sufficient to populate his kingdom. Just think of those three things. Power sufficient to plant his kingdom, power sufficient to preserve his king, and power sufficient to populate his kingdom. Power to plant his kingdom. In a very real sense... For those of you who have been around for the last year and a half uh, since Barb and I arrived in town, this may be one of those oh-not-again moments. But it's a reminder. There is a very real sense in which this idea of the king and the kingdom is the central theme of the Bible. History is the story. Got to say this. Because everything is heating up, okay? Iowa has had its caucuses. New Hampshire is going to have its primary. Uh, It's heating up. And there are people who are happy and there are people who are sad. Well, it isn't about Mike Huckabee. And it's not about Barack Obama. And it's not about Hillary Clinton. And it's not about Rudy Giuliani. It's not about Herod the King. It's not about Caesar Augustus. History is the story of the one true king, God Almighty, who is reestablishing his rightful rule over everything that he has made. And if you're going to have a kingdom, you've got to have a king. And so the whole of the Old Testament is preparation for this moment. The promise of a king. Prophecies concerning a king. Prophecies, as we've said, that begin in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The first 
word spoken by God, the first promise given after the fall, after the disobedience of the first Adam, plunged the whole of the creation into brokenness, damaged everything, wrecked everything, left all of us a mess and mess makers. The first word is, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the seed of the woman, and you will bruise him on the heel, and he will crush your head. That's the seminal promise. That's the promise that establishes the trajectory for the whole of the rest of human history. For all of the Old Testament leading down to this very moment in Bethlehem, a conqueror is going to come. A warrior is going to come. He's going to possess all might and all authority and all power. And what is he going to do? He's going to vanquish the one who seeks to vanquish God, everything that he's made, all of his people. And he will stand against him and he will crush him. He will crush him. That's the seminal promise, and it's a promise that unfolds across the rest of the Old Testament. It unfolds, for example, in a passage that we read over the Advent season. Isaiah 9, this son is going to be born. This child will be given. And what will he be called? He'll be called a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. A king is going to come. It's central to the idea that is at the core of the Bible, and that is God's determination to reestablish his rightful rule over everything that he has made. You see it here in this text. You certainly see it in Genesis 3. You see it. In Isaiah 9, you see it in other places like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and Psalm 72, but you see it here in Micah 5. And here's the thing that you want to keep in mind as you read Micah 5 and as you think about passages like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and Psalm 72 and Genesis 3 and Isaiah 9 and all the rest, these passages that promise a king to Israel, these passages that stirred up the hope of Israel, there's one thing you want to remember. This king is not like any other king who has ever ruled in Israel or any place else. Any place else. And that's what Micah 5 tells us. What is quoted here, when Herod calls together all the priests and all the scribes, he gets together all of the theologians, he brings them into his court, He's heard about a king, a king who has been born, a king who is called king of the Jews. It had to stop him in his tracks because who is he? He's identified as the king of the Jews in the text. He is a king who feels threatened at the prospect of the birth of another king. So he gathers all the theologians together. He wants to find this king and he wants to exterminate him. He wants to eliminate anybody who would be a pretender to his throne. And what's the passage that is cited? You, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's the first respect in which this king is different from the other kings. 
This king isn't like Saul. Saul, who was only concerned about externals. Saul, who was all about what people could see, that he was tall, dark, and handsome. The Mitt Romney (laughs) of the 11th century B.C. Presidential in appearance. Not a short little war-ravaged veteran with pockmarked face like John McCain, but tall and dark and handsome and presidential in appearance. Who seeks to gain ascendancy to the throne in order to serve his own selfish, self-absorbed interests, much like his heir, two generations removed, Solomon. Solomon, the son of David, the third of the kings, Saul and David, and then Solomon. Solomon, who was given limitless wisdom and limitless resources, incalculable wealth, and used both the wisdom and the resources to what end? To serve, to serve the vain imaginations of his own corrupt heart who turned away from God, who married foreign wives rather than heeding the word of God. Not a king. Not a king like David. Not a king king like Saul. Not a king like Solomon. Not even a king like David who became a murderer an adulterer, a liar, a conspirator against his people. No, this king is going to be different. This king will rise up and he will shepherd his people, Israel. Rather than seeking to be served, he will serve and give his life as a ransom for his people. Rather than making slaves of his people, he will become their slave even to the point of death on a cross. That's what we've been saying. This is a king who is unlike any other king. The first difference about him is that he will be a shepherd. He will have the heart of a shepherd. But if you read on in Micah chapter 5, it's not cited in the text here. But if you read on in Micah chapter 5 and the rest of chapter 5 and verse 2, you read this. Out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times, or literally who is from the days of eternity. This son who will be born, who is called the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, God tells us through the prophet Micah, did not come to be in the womb of Mary. He did not begin to be in the womb of Mary. Yes, touching his human nature. We've been saying this. It was a real, it was a real embryo. 
It was a real human baby in the womb of his mother. But this eternal God, this wonderful counselor, this prince of peace is from eternity. And the most miraculous thing that has ever happened, this thing we've been stressing, is that the eternal God takes to himself a human nature, is conceived in the womb of a woman, and is born in this barn in Bethlehem. And he is the ancient of days. He is, as John puts it in his gospel, the word who was there in the beginning who was with God and who was God and through whom you came into existence. It isn't that Jesus came into existence through Mary. But it is that you and all things came into existence because of the word who then became flesh, taking this human nature to himself and was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. This is the eternal God. He is the king of the kings and the Lord of the lords. And that is what is promised throughout the Old Testament. And God, who is infinite in power and glory, has power sufficient. This should be tremendously comforting to you. Has power sufficient to fulfill every promise and prophecy that he makes. If he has power sufficient to fulfill every promise concerning his son, concerning the king of the kings and the Lord of the lords, who is promised across the centuries of Old Testament history, finding their fulfillment in this birth, in this particular place. He has power sufficient to do for you everything that he said he would do. To preserve you, to keep you, to protect and defend you. And so God's power, this power, is sufficient to establish the kingdom, to plant the kingdom right in Herod's backyard. Five miles. Five miles from Herod's address. You could walk there in an hour and 15 minutes. Five miles from Herod's address. The king of kings and the lord of lords comes into the world and plants the eternal kingdom of God, beginning this work of reestablishing the rule and reign of God Almighty over everything. And when he establishes that rule, it is a rule unlike any rule established by any king, Herod, Augustus Caesar, or anybody else. Because it is a rule characterized not only by power, but by goodness and mercy and compassion and justice and love. So the power of God establishes the kingdom, the power of God plants the kingdom, and the power of God, as we've already hinted at, as we've already suggested, the power of God is able to preserve and protect the king. Now look, this is a real threat at the human level. Again, it's five miles from Herod's address. An hour and 15 minutes on foot at most. And there is a king 
whose birth is announced. And you see, as you read, as I've already mentioned, as you read in Matthew's gospel, you see what Herod's response is to the prospect of this king making his appearance. It is brutal to destroy every male child under the age of two in the city of Bethlehem. Can you imagine soldiers tramping through the streets, marching through the streets with swords? They didn't didn't do this politely. They didn't do this for PG audiences or for G audiences. Marching through the streets, breaking down doors, taking six-month, 18-month, two-year-old boys out of the arms of fathers and mothers and murdering them in the streets of Bethlehem. This was a real threat at the human level. And look at this king. Look at him in his condition. Weak, vulnerable, exposed, helpless. What about his parents? His parents didn't have an arsenal of weapons. His parents didn't have a guard posted at the door. His parents didn't have an army of defenders. So where do they turn? What is their hope? What is their protection? What is their refuge? What is their defense? What is the safety of the newborn king? the safety of the newborn king in the face of this threat is the Lord God Almighty. Just let me make this observation. I don't have time to unpack it and explore it. But let me just make this observation that this is the kind of thing that happens when Christ appears on the scene. When Christ appears on the scene, and the implications of who he is and what he is and what his demands are, when that begins to come into focus for people, there are only two responses. The one response is to do what the Magi did. The one response is to seek him and bow before him and worship him as Lord and God. The other response is the response of Herod, to seek to silence him, to seek to destroy him, to seek to kill him. Read through the Gospels. Read through the Gospels. I encourage you to look at the nature of the response to Jesus. It is always the same, either to bow before him and worship him and as a token of gratitude to him, do what the Magi did, give gifts, which is simply a way of saying, my life belongs to you. All that I am is yours. All that I have is yours. Nothing that you ask of me I will decline to do or the response of Herod, which is to seek to silence him, seek to destroy him, seek to kill him. Christ is a threat. Christ always causes trouble, even in this condition as a helpless, unprotected, newborn king. 
but he is protected, he is preserved, he is kept by the same hand that planted him in the first place. The hand of Almighty God, infinite and eternal and unchanging. Think about how it is that Jesus got to Bethlehem. This is amazing. He's in his mother's womb, and they're not from Bethlehem. Right? Different zip code. They live in another place. They live in Nazareth. That's where Joseph is from. He's from Nazareth. That's where they had living, were living. That's where they went back to after they left Bethlehem and went to Egypt and were in Egypt until the threat of Herod passed, probably 18 months or two years or three years. And then they returned and went to Nazareth after the threat had passed. By the way, the story of a little boy in a Sunday school class who, who was encouraged to, to draw a picture of a Bible story. And so he drew a jet airplane and there were four people in the airplane. There was a mother and a father and there was a little boy and the teacher asked him what the picture was. And he said, oh, well, this is the flight into Egypt. <laughs> and, and she said, oh, well, this must be Joseph. Yeah, it's Joseph. This must be Mary. That's Mary. This must be the baby Jesus. Yeah, that's the baby Jesus. Well, who's the fourth person? Oh, that's Pontius the pilot. <laughs> Well, after the flight into Egypt, they took a flight to Nazareth, which is where Joseph was from. How do they get from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Think about what's happened in the gospel accounts, whether in Luke or in Matthew. Think about this. It's simply stunning. It was pointed out to me by a commentator on the passage. Think of the other announcements that were made, the announcement that was made to Gabriel, the announcement that was made to Mary, the warning that Joseph received not to put Mary away. An angel could have come to Joseph and Mary in Nazareth and said, hey, read your Bible, read Micah, Micah chapter 5, the baby needs to be born in Bethlehem. So go, but he didn't do that. Do you know what he did? The infinite and eternal hand of Almighty God didn't go to Nazareth, didn't go to Jerusalem, but went to Rome and put it in the heart of Caesar Augustus to call for a census of the whole world. So that this father and this mother and this little baby could be born in the place where he's supposed to be born a power that is big enough to hold the heavens in place, a power that is big enough to move the heart of a king. That's what Proverbs says. The heart of the hand is in the king, and he moves it as a water course however he wishes and desires. A heart, a power that is big enough to move the heart of Caesar Augustus is a power big enough to protect the Savior and to protect all who belong to him. The power of God is sufficient to plant the kingdom. The power of God is sufficient to preserve the king. And thankfully, the power of God is great enough, sufficient enough to populate the kingdom. Everybody wants to know about the star, right? Everybody wants to know about the, what's the deal with the star? What's the deal with the star? All kinds of theories, all kinds of speculations. 
Some people believe, and apparently the astronomers are able to go back in time and they're able to determine through their studies how planets configured themselves and what their relationship was to constellations and all the rest. They can go backwards and do this. And there was an unusual configuration of planets and stars in 6 or 7 BC, and it could be that the Magi who saw the star rising in the east, rising in the direction of the east, coming up in the direction of the east from where they were, could be that they saw these stars in their relationship to some constellations, thought something unusual was up. Maybe they heard some Jews talking in the streets, or maybe one of them stumbled into a synagogue and heard the prophecy of Micah or the prophecy of Isaiah read in one of those synagogues. Maybe these magi were so frustrated with the bankruptcy of their own systems that they were looking for some good news. They were looking for some hope. They were looking for some story that would make sense of their stories. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. The scriptures only tell us something about a star. Maybe it was a supernova. Maybe it was an angelic being that appeared to be or looked like a star. Angels are referred to as stars in the scriptures. We don't know. All kinds of theories about what was there. Don't be distracted by the secondary things. Here's the central thing. God will employ whatever means he has to employ to get people to the Savior. He'll employ whatever means he has to employ, and he is able to employ whatever means he desires to employ to get people to the Savior. Summer of 1971, let me just close with this as an illustration. Summer of 1971, I'm sorry, of 1970. Some of you know bits and pieces of this story, but let me just share a little bit of it with you. Summer of 1970, this 19-year-old kid has flunked out of college, scared to death that he's going to end up in Vietnam. Had his hopes, his heart, his dreams fixed. Fixed upon changing the world, seeing the world be a different place. Seeing the world be rid, be rid of poverty and despair and injustice of any and every kind. He really believed that he could make a difference. Maybe that's where the Magi were. Maybe it was the summer of 1970 for them. And everybody who looks at him from the outside sees everything normal and in place and proper and they have influence and all of the rest of these things. But in their souls, there is an ache. In their chests, there is a breaking heart. Because even though they've acquired what they've acquired and accumulated what they've accumulated and done what they've done, it's not enough. And it's not enough because it was never designed to be enough. And so like that kid in 1970, maybe the Magi were feeling the weight of the bankruptcy, the bankruptcy 
of their own system, their own beliefs, empty. And for this 19-year-old kid in the summer of 1970, a friend says this very unusual thing, I have to quit the band, the rock and roll band that we all played in. I have to quit the band. Why do you have to quit the band? Because God wants me to quit the band. And this 19-year-old kid saw a star in the sky that he'd never seen before. God wants you to quit the band. How do you know that? How can a person know something like that? How can you know that? He kept it quiet. He didn't say a thing until nine months later he went looking for his friend and his friend told him about the star. He told him that the star was Jesus. Told him that God had created him for fellowship with himself. But that sin is the explanation for the hopelessness, for the bankruptcy of everything, for the meaninglessness of all of this stuff. Sin is responsible for death and everything associated with death that threatens us. But Christ has come. The star of David has come into the world to overcome it. And anyone who does what the Magi did, anyone who bows before the star, worships him, accepts him, goes away rejoicing. That's the truth, friends. And God has power to use a stupid statement like the former lead guitar player in my old band. God wants me to quit the band. That's all God needed to get hold of me and nine months later bring me before the child to receive him as Lord and King. That's the point here. God has power sufficient to get anybody into the presence of the king so that they might bow before him and own him as Lord and Savior and King of Kings. That's the invisible hand in the text. Power to plant the kingdom. Power to preserve the king and power to populate the kingdom with citizens like you and me who come before the king of kings and simply do what the Magi did, humble themselves and worship him as Lord and God. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your father considered it insufficient for you to receive glory simply among the Jewish people. Thank you that your Father so loves you and so seeks your exaltation that he would be satisfied with nothing less, nothing less than having worshipers gathered from every race and nation and tribe and tongue from the face of the earth. And Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you for these wise men, however many there were, who were led by your Father's guiding and directing and preserving hand to worship in your presence, representing all of them, this vast multitude, whom you continue to gather to this day 
and bring into your own presence from the nations of the world. How we bless and praise you for this portion of your word. And we thank you in your name. Amen. Let me encourage you to worship, to praise God, to sing those praises with number 441. Jesus shall reign where ere the sun does his successive journeys run. Number 441. Stand with me as we sing together. <clears throat>